Hello and welcome to the Scottish Politics Podcast. My name's David Clegg, I'm the political editor of The Daily Record and your host. I'm delighted to be joined by two brilliant guests today. From the Green Party, I have Andy Whiteman, who is an MSP for Lovian. And from the SNP, I have Gail Ross, who's the MSP for Caithness, Sutherland and Ross. Later on today, we'll be discussing First Minister's questions, a Tory MSP's comments on whether the poor should have children, hunting in Isla, and a little bit about the NHS and whether it's properly funded. But first of all this week, I thought I would start by asking my two guests what their highlight of the week has been. And I'll start with you, Andy. What, what have, what's been the highlight of your week so far? Well, I've only been in politics two and a half years, and uh, one of the first things I realise is that it takes a long time to get stuff done here, and that's probably a good thing. Uh, we shouldn't do things in too much of a hurry. But I've been campaigning on short-term lets, Airbnb, for a year now, and secured an amendment to the planning bill yesterday. So that feels like big, because kind of you know how much work goes into actually what's quite a modest <laughs> legislative uh, reform. We've got some way to go yet, but it kind of feels good in its so some what, way. So what was the amendment? Well, at the moment, it's very difficult to... I mean, these short-term lets are meant to have planning consent, but most of them don't. And to judge whether a change of use has occurred from a home to a short-term let, you have to investigate how many people are visiting and how often. That's virtually impossible. So Mm. my amendment is saying that you define the change of use based on has it changed from being a main residence of someone to being a commercial let. Simple. And do you think that that will become law and this might make a difference to us? through committee yesterday and uh, the opposition parties are all in broad agreement and the government seems to want to talk about it so I think it's going to happen yeah great Gail what was your highlight of the week my highlight of the week was being made a brand new species champion for seagrass seagrass yes I thought you were a species champion for something else already the red squirrel so you're now a species champion for two different species land and sea Wow, so tell us about seagrass and and how are you planning on championing it? Seagrass is extremely um, environmentally significant and uh, there's a really, really good organisation called Project Seagrass and they're currently mapping all the places that they've managed to find it around our coast. Now, seagrass is important because it stores blue carbon and with um, the way that climate change is going at the moment, I think we need to be looking a lot more about what happens in the oceans. And also the big focus at the moment on ocean plastics as well. Seagrass has been shown to trap the plastics before they go out to sea and are more difficult to catch. So it's significant in a lot of ways. Okay, that's really interesting. Uh, And thank you for that. It's about half past one on Thursday afternoon. We've had First Minister's questions. Uh, Later on this afternoon in Parliament, there's going to be a couple of important parliamentary statements on P1 testing and also on home curfews. There's also quite an interesting council by-election happening today in Cope Bridge, which the Labour Party in particular have been throwing everything at. They're very keen to get a victory there. Uh, So it's interesting to see what happens with that result uh, this evening. Uh, But let's talk about what's been happening at Holyrood this week. And we'll start with First Minister's questions today, which uh, it was quite a unique First Minister's questions or, or a different tone to First Minister's questions because with the Conservative Party leader, Ruth Davidson, now off on maternity leave. Uh, Her deputy, Jackson Carlow, was uh, leading for the Conservatives today and he took quite a a friendly approach to begin with. He even said, amazingly, that he quite liked Nicola Sturgeon, much to the shock of many many observers. Uh, uh, Andy, how did you think Jackson Carlow got on today? Well, Jackson Carlow is a kind of class act in Parliament and he's a good speaker. Um, And I think, you know, standing in for... 
your party leader when you're the main opposition party, FMQs must be quite daunting, mm-hmm. I think. Um, he said to me, and I'm sure this is, he's not going to accuse me of being indiscreet, um, that, you know, the main thing, the main difference between him and Ruth is that he doesn't want to be First Minister, <laughs> you know, so it's not like he's going to be using, well, I'm sure he will be using it, obviously, to position the Tories in a credible place for the next election, etc. But he, he brings a different tone mm-hmm. to the whole conversation. And I think it was important that he kind of reached out and made some introductory remarks. And I think it's fair to say that most politicians, whether they agree or disagree with somebody's politics, do actually like a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. And Nicola Sturgeon, whatever you think of her politics, <clears throat> is a very competent and uh, widely admired politician. So to say that he likes her, I think, was actually quite a, you know, a useful thing to do. And he led on the Mesh scandal. Now, as anyone who's followed Hollywood politics will know, he and two other older men of a certain generation have been campaigning extremely effectively on this topic. And I was not at all surprised uh, to find that he chose to use that as the topic of his first outing. As a topic, it's obviously it's very important uh, and, it's a, and it's a very uh, important issue but I guess it's an issue that was always likely to find consensus in the chamber especially with Nicola Sturgeon. Gail, as, a, as an SNP person what, what, what are your thoughts about the fact is it, is it, is it, do you think it's an opportunity for the SNP are they, are they happy to see Ruth Davidson not around for a while to get relief from her scrutinising the government or, or do you think it doesn't make a great deal of difference really? I wouldn't say that we're happy that Ruth's not there. I mean, she's uh, she's very tenacious in chamber in um, first minister's questions, and uh, but as you say, uh, Jackson approaches it very differently. He's he's a, a seasoned politician. He's a statesman. Uh, the tone um, was was very sensitive and sympathetic, as of course it, it should be, rightly so. And the first minister again took the opportunity to apologise to all the mesh victims, which, you know, was also the right thing to do. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, afterwards, some of the the journalists here in the press corridor where we're recording this podcast went in uh, what we call doorstep Jackson Carlo to ask him some questions. It was about uh, an exchange in the chamber yesterday with the Tory MSP, Michelle Ballantyne, uh, she made some remarks which have been widely reported in the press this morning and which caused quite a bit of controversy online. It was in regards to the the two-child ch- cap on tax credits, which is, uh, has been a controversial issue, and she effectively said that it's fair that if you're on benefits, you shouldn't be able to have more than two children. Just so I'm not accused of misquoting her, I'll, I'll, t- I'll say exactly what, what she said. She said, it is fair that people on benefits cannot have as many children as they like while people who work and pay their way and don't claim benefits have to make decisions about the number of children they can have. Jackson Carlo asked about that today, said that he uh, he thought it was regrettable the way she'd expressed herself and that it was clumsy and that maybe she regretted it. Uh, Gail, what did you make of that exchange yesterday uh, and and what do you think it says about the Conservative Party and welfare? Well, I don't think it's really a surprise that attitude has, has come to the fore. I mean, Michelle Ballantyne is probably articulating what the policy actually means to the Conservatives and it's not up to any politician or to anybody to be dictating um, whether people are on benefits or not, how many children people should have. I think it was an absolutely disgraceful comment and as Tom Arthur rightly put it in his speech following on from that, it belonged in the pages of a Dickensian novel and I think that you might say that perhaps she's regretting it as far as I'm aware she hasn't apologised for it. No, I don't think she has. Andy, I, I suspect that you may find some agreement with Gail on this issue. 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes when I listen to politicians saying things like that, I sometimes wonder, are you just naive? Are you just repeating the party line? You don't know what you're talking about? Um, or are you, are you really believing what you say? And I think, I'm still trying to come to terms with it because I only watched it once, but I think she genuinely believes it. And it is actually despicable and shocking because at the centre of any welfare policy concerning children should be children. Correct. And children don't have any control about the financial and economic circumstances in which the parents find themselves in. And I also think she's fundamentally flawed in her defence of it because she was talking about people who choose, right, as if it's a choice not to be in work. There'll be people today who have lost their job because of factory closures or redundancies, who have three or four children, who will find themselves reliant on the social security net that we've built, who will not get those benefits. They chose to have those children years ago. It is an, an, an abhorrent policy. And for anyone to stand up and defend it, I think is, is well, uh, yeah, it's beyond words. Well, there's no Conservatives here today, so uh, to play devil's advocate for the moment, but some of the, the spin that the press have had from Conservative people when we're talking about this is that uh, the policy is popular with the public, or that the public like the idea that uh, you should, there's the, the benefits shouldn't be rolled out to people with large families or that there's uh, another thing I heard from a Tory spinner today was that welfare is being weaponized to such an extent that it's not possible to have a, a, an honest conversation about it in this parliament. I, I have to feel like a lot of those arguments are grasping and, and they're struggling to get anywhere and to be fair to Jackson Carlo, he didn't try to make any of them publicly today when we asked him about it. Do you, do you, do you, do you Gail, do you think there's there's in your constituency whenever you're t- talking about this issue do you do you feel that the the public are concerned about about benefits or do you think that the the SNP's policy is is the right one as andy says a welfare system is there to help the most vulnerable in our society and to target children in that is abhorrent now the tories can spin all they want saying that it's popular amongst the public. It might be popular amongst Tory voters, but people that I've spoken to have been absolutely aghast and I don't see a lot of support coming from the people that I talk to on the doors and out in the streets for capping the number of children that you can get credits for. And also, on top of that, when you actually explain to people what the rape clause is, people are absolutely disgusted. Yeah, the rape clause for people listening that don't know that are uh, if you have more than two children, there is an exemption where if you sign a form to say that the child was conceived through rape, that you will get benefits for that child. Uh, Andy, just before just before we leave that subject, I was struck by watching back the footage of this exchange yesterday that uh, Jeremy Balfour, who's another Tory MSP in the background, was almost visibly cringing and trying to trying to hide almost. Uh, as as, as, that, as the remarks were being made, do you sense from any of the Tories that you talked to here that there was some discomfort with it? Well, I don't know about Jeremy, and I, I saw that he could merely have been, you know, doing something administrative. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think well, Jackson's comments kind of sum it up, and he was obviously being quite diplomatic. Um, I don't think a number of Tories I speak to do not think this policy is a good policy, and you'll find this in all parties, particularly big parties. There will be policies they disagree with. Um, and the Scottish Conservatives are in a unique position. I mean, they could they could come out and say, "Look, we're unhappy with this because they are distinct." And the fact that they haven't, in fact, the fact that they haven't actually owned this policy and, and, and developed their own version of it or their own arguments or critique of it, 
uh, is a weakness for them and they have allowed you know the rape clause has been to a degree weaponized because it's got the word rape in it and what was interesting about yesterday's discussion and the intervention that Elon Campbell made that led to this was they actually talked about the two ca child cap and that is actually the principal thing because the rape clause follows from that yeah. and actually we've seldom talked about that so to that extent the exchange was very welcome that's good uh, well, the, the Labour Party, Richard Leonard, the Scottish Labour leader, he went on the Audit Scotland report on the NHS at First Minister's Questions this afternoon. That's a report that's out this morning. Uh, it's quite stark reading, I have to say. I've read a lot of these reports and it's one of the... Uh, it's quite brutal, to be honest. Uh, so just to give you a, a quick summary of it before we discuss it, uh, the Auditor General, Caroline Gardner, uh, says that the service in the NHS is in decline. Uh, she notes that funding fell 0.2% last year in real terms, that there's a £899 million backlog in repairs, and that most NHS boards uh, fail to meet their eight key performance targets. I feel like as long as I've been covering Scottish politics, we've been talking about the NHS being in crisis, but it does sound like from reading that report that we are at a point where there are serious concerns about its, its future. Uh, in fact, it says quite starkly that the NHS is not financially sustainable uh, in the current form. Andy, I'll go to you first. What, what would the Green Party do differently in dealing with the NHS? Well, everyone loves the NHS, and um, it is also the fact that opposition parties will always rightly hold the government, any government of any colour, to account over the management of a very key public service, and that's the job they have to do. And of course, the Auditor General's job as well is to provide some impartial scrutiny on that, and that's extremely valuable. Um, I mean, yes, the critique is, is, is a valid critique, but I, I would want to move beyond the kind of day-to-day -day critiques about money and stuff, because the problem with the National Health Service is that it is so loved that any politician that dares to um, seek reform uh, finds himself quickly in a very difficult place. And I think we have to have intelligent measured conversations about the future of the NHS. So just very briefly, at the 2016 election, we Greens went on hustings, platforms, and we said for the first time in public that we felt that a measure of the success of government policy was if funding for the NHS were to fall. Because the NHS is there to deal with people who are unhealthy and sick. And the focus of government policy should be, to the extent that it can, uh, be about... Um, in terms of environment, in terms of uh, housing, transport, about making the population healthy and reducing demands in the NHS. Now, that does not mean to say that the NHS will still face increasing demands with an elderly population and all the rest well, of it. This point is going to make that a lot of the extra demand is driven by an ageing population. Indeed, indeed it is. And that will increase it. That's a challenge facing all of society in terms of housing and many other bits of public policy. But I'd like us, hopefully, to move beyond... The, uh, the kind of day-to-day -day political spats over the NHS to begin to have a more intelligent conversation about, for example, preventative spending. I mean, the SNP has got a manifesto commitment to spend £500 million more than the rate of inflation on the health service. Now, what if, for example, it was really successful in housing, environment and transport and people over the next two years became very healthy and didn't need it? Does that mean they will still spend £500 million? It's a kind of a nonsense commitment to make. And yet, understandably, it's popular with the public. I want to bring Gail in shortly, but just on preventative spending, that's a buzzword we've been hearing for years. In fact, I think it was the 2012 budget that the Scottish government made a big deal out of the fact that they were switching resources to preventative spending. So are you saying that you think that that's not happening quickly enough, that you would like more money there? It's not happening quickly enough, and it's not happening quickly enough for a whole range of reasons. Um, but, you know, if we make the streets out here cleaner, 
less people will suffer respiratory problems. If we make housing warmer, less people will fall ill during the winter. If we make transport uh, more sustainable and more available, it'll mean that people are able to get around easier. If we put more money into active travel options, etc. There's lots and lots of ways to make the population healthier, including you know minimum unit pricing and all the other interventions the government's trying to make. This is not easy, but that should be the focus. Gail, you were you were nodding in agreement in a lot in a lot there. I, was, I, I thought I might find something you two disagreed in this one, but uh, no, oh, I, I mean do that for one. <laughs> Andy's absolutely right. Um, the more uh, healthy and active our population are, I mean, it stands to reason that the less they're going to need to use the health service. And I mean, I know uh, uh, that we do have a, a, an aging population. I also know quite a lot of fit and healthy elderly people as well. So it's about lifestyles. It's about how we put that across to people that, you know, trying to keep your weight down and stopping smoking. And I think we've made a number of public health commitments with the minimum unit pricing and the banning of smoking in in public places and, and various other things. Um, but yeah, you know, more exercise. You're, Andy's absolutely right with the, the environmental stuff as well. But I think that what, what we have to realise is that there have been announcements made since the audit report was compiled. I mean, only um, just recently in chamber, the Cabinet Secretary for Health, Jean Freeman, announced the £850 million uh, waiting time improvement plan. Now, I know it's not all about money. We have got issues. Um, I know myself up in Highland, we've got big issues with recruitment and retention of staff. We're spending a lot of money on locums. And, you know, these are, are issues that... As Andy says again, it's not just Scotland that's facing it, it's UK-wide and, and worldwide. Yours is a constituency where I guess that problem would be particularly acute. Can you can you tell us a bit about how it manifests itself there in your, in your, from your own experience in your constituency? Well, ever since um, I was a councillor in Highland Council, we've been trying to um, put together vacancies, as in local authority vacancies, whether they be teachers or, or, or whatever they are, along with the NHS to try and work together because... It is, it's a big move to get a doctor or a nurse that's got a partner or a family to come and relocate in somewhere like Caithness or Sutherland. Um, it's a remote rural area. We can't offer the services that you get in the city, but we've got so many other things to offer them. So we try and sell the area as a package. But there have been really quite severe um, recruitment issues over the past few years. So NHS Highland are in the middle of a reform up in Caithness. And they're really having to look at how they offer services. And um, it's it's been quite a, a process and it's it's not an easy solution. Andy, I thought what you said earlier was fascinating about preventative spending, but it, I think you seemed reluctant to criticise the current administration. I mean, surely that report card that Audit Scotland gave them this morning suggests that whatever the solutions are, the, the Scottish government who have been in charge of the NHS for the last 11 years haven't been quick enough in finding them. What, oh, absolutely. What would you like to see them doing differently? Well, I'm, I mean, yes. I mean, the, the, the health service is not in a sustainable position, as the Audit Scotland report said, and that is partly down to the government, but it's... We actually need a, a broad cross-party consensus and firm action to try and implement uh, 
preventative spend. You know, we're, we're, we still haven't got air quality management zones. Why not? There's thousands of people dying and getting respiratory conditions. Now, if we're doing proper preventative spend, we'd look at the cost of creating an air management zone. We'd look at the savings and there'd be some way of recouping that from the NHS. There's no accounting regime, for example. There needs to be an accounting regime. And we need to, this is the critical thing, we must stop talking about the NHS uh, and health policy as just being about the NHS. Health policy is about healthy people. The NHS is a national sickness service. So I think we actually need to reposition this whole debate. I mean, I'm not shying away from criticising the government. I'm happy to do that. But the fact that this is a more kind of nuanced and kind of relaxed environment mm. in which to talk about these things is why I'm mm. not going to go down that road, because I think there's bigger, bigger, more tricky discussions perhaps to be had. You, you kind of touched on a point, I'll maybe get your view on it, Gail, about there's I've I've heard this many times from many different politicians that there's almost a problem that because the NHS is such a cherished public service, it becomes a political football, and there's certain uh, shibboleths almost that you that you have to be very careful about when you're talking about it and thinking out loud. Andy mentioned there the fact that the, it would be a measure of success if funding was going down. As someone who obviously has a constituency where health issues are prominent and who's also uh, supporting the party of government, do you find that navigating that territory tricky because you you just you just feel like you have to be so sensitive whenever you're talking about the issue? Well, I mean, it is a sensitive issue because um, it, you know you only use the NHS when you're in a vulnerable position, and health is obviously extremely important. But we always talk about or the politicians always seem to talk about the negative and we don't hear about all the fantastic success stories within the NHS. I used it myself only a few weeks ago and the process was absolutely flawless. From phoning NHS 24 to getting an out-of-hours appointment to getting the operation to getting the aftercare. I could not have any complaints and I think that every time we stand up in chamber Every time we put out a press release, every time we speak to anybody in the public about the NHS, what must be first and foremost on our minds is that we still have one of the best health services in the world. We have hard work and really, really committed staff and we need to be thinking along the lines of it's not always the negatives. We need to be shouting about the positives as well. Okay. We'll leave that issue there. I'm sure there's plenty to discuss about the NHS in the weeks and months ahead. I want to move on to a story which isn't isn't really a political story, but it's got a it's got a political aspect to it. It's in all the papers this morning, and also it was lighting up Twitter uh, yesterday. And it is about uh, Larissa Switlick, who describes herself as a professional huntress from the states, and she has recently been in Scotland hunting goats on Isla, uh, and she put pictures on Twitter about it. Uh, of her with, with a dead goat and it understandably provoked very strong reactions uh, in fact so, such strong reactions that she's been tweeting this morning saying she's received death threats on the back of it um, Andy what, what what issues do you think this story raised because it, it was it's certainly been getting lots of coverage well it raises a lot of issues I mean one it raises the power of social media in the modern age um, but you know those pictures if they hadn't been taken those events would still have occurred um, and yet we wouldn't have known about them. 
Um, I think it's positive that there's been a debate. I mean, people feel passionately about this. I mean, I, I am totally opposed to all blood sports. I mean, my party is as well. I mean, we would ban them tomorrow if we could. Um, and so I think it's been... We well should say that this is just the tip of the iceberg as regards to blood sports in Scotland. Well, well yeah. And um, I, mean, I think what's welcome is that the public have had a window into a particular type of hunting, which is focused around the glory um, and the success and the trophy, which I think people find uniquely offensive. Actually, if people just quietly go about their business shooting things, it doesn't seem to cause so much. But you know, as a, as a vegan, you know, I have I have issues with that as well. Um, so yeah, the, the power of social media, and you know, the first minister said she's going to consider how the law must change. Well, I suppose that's quite welcome, but it does kind of beg the question that you know, you know, if you get a, a very graphic picture in social media, do you get the ear of the government? Um, I mean, I think this is it is pretty grotesque. I think some of the reactions have been interesting. Judy Murray, I think, was tweeting saying, you know, this is Scotland. Well, yeah, but we shoot things all over the place. And it's a beautiful island. Well, it would be okay if it was an ugly island, you know. And I think some people are struggling to work it out because it, it, what it also illustrates is that a lot of people haven't a clue about what goes on. And a lot of people actually think it's fundamentally wrong to shoot animals at all. Um, and yet that's not where public policy is. Yeah, well, I did not I did not know about this until yesterday, so I'll tell you what the legal position is because we checked it out. Uh, several tourism companies offer the chance to stop wild goats in Isla, Dumfries and Galloway and other parts of the UK. They're classed as an invasive and non-native species and hunting them on private land is not illegal. Uh, and there has been culls in recent years and also they're often shot with contraceptive darts so they can't breed in the wild. Gail, what did you make of this issue and, I mean, why do you think it's kind of caused such a furore, given that, it, as Andy points out, it's something that happens every day, really? It is, and coming from a massive rural constituency, I mean, the hunting of animals is not something that I personally take anything to do with. Um, the thought of, of, of partaking in such a... It, it, it disgusts me, actually, Um but I do know that um, people feel that it is their right to be able to go and hunt. Um, it wasn't illegal. And um, I think it was just the fact that, I mean, to me, trophy hunting is completely different than hunting for food. And I think that there's an issue with what actually happens to the animal once it's killed. I think there's an issue with the glorification of it, um, the apparent joy that it seems to bring people. I just don't understand it myself. It doesn't. It seems to me that there can't be a great deal of sport in killing a goat. No, that was something that um, immediately struck me as well. It seems uh, a bit pathetic, really. I mean, one of one, one of them just looked like a sheep. One of them was yeah. a sheep. But I mean, Gail's constituency, you know, the virtually all is covered by landed estates um, devoted to blood sports and that's why I say we're you know public opinion is in a very different place where public policy is you know half the country is managed for blood sports now if people think it's abhorrent to be shooting goats or presumably other animals then uh, you know why is that not finding political expression do you have much dealings with the shooting estates in your constituency go no no just just you just don't just doesn't happen why is that um I tend to um, speak to people that are more maybe um, 
get the sense you're trying to be diplomatic. I am. I am. Maybe quite difficult for Gail to speak to them because the Duke of Westminster doesn't live there. Yes, Mr. Paulson's yes, a Danish yes. billionaire and all the rest. Although of I it. have met Mr. Paulson. All oh, right. Um, yeah. uh, no, I think that there. You know, you've got you've got good landlords and you've got maybe not so good ones. Um, I certainly don't agree with uh, the the estate model. I think that the Land Reform Act was uh, extremely overdue. My predecessor, Rob Gibson, had a huge hand in um, forming that piece of legislation. And I just I just feel that it, it's just a different life. Yeah. It's just a completely different life. And I, I just I just It's can't. almost like it's happening in a different world than it is the, happening the, in a different well, world. In a different century, I mean, I mean, maybe. The, the Highlands of Scotland historically have been a resource colony uh, for wealthy people outside Scotland to come and hunt. They're devoted almost extensively to that now. Um, and that is the challenge, is to transform the economy from one that's exclusively focused in many parts on blood sports to one that's much, much more vibrant, much more diverse, got many, many people living in it and engaged in the ownership and management of land. In a it. lot more community ownership. And I think, yeah, there's a broad agreement you know, across probably all parties, apart from the Tories on that. But actually making that change... It's really difficult, you know. One act doesn't do it. No. Um, I mean, there's a government review underway at the moment into the future of driven grouse shooting. Um, that's on the back of you know extensive wildlife crime and poisoning of raptors and stuff. That's due to report in April. I'm involved in the launching of a new campaign on on, on grouse shooting uh, in a couple of weeks' time. So uh, these issues are coming onto the political radar a little bit more. Um, and yeah, let's see where where it all goes. Well, it's a fascinating issue. I feel like we've talked for it for a bit longer, but we, uh, we need to finish up now. Andy, just before we go, we nearly had a Brexit-free podcast there. But let me just ask you, what is the latest update on your court case on on ha- being able to uh, revoke Article 50? So what? we want to know whether it's legally... Whether if the UK Parliament were to instruct the government to revoke Article 50, whether that would have the legal effect of leaving us in the EU. And we've been in the court of session for a year trying to get that... Uh, issue answered. Eventually, on appeal, uh, the court of session agreed that that was a question they would wish they would agree to answer. But of course, they can't answer it themselves. They have to refer it to the Court of Justice in the EU. They've made that referral. The Court of Justice is going to hear the arguments on the 27th of November. And then it'll come back to the Court of Session with the answer, and then the Court of Session will tell us the answer. That's the way the process works. Meanwhile, the UK government, who are opposing our action, um, have stepped in to try and get an appeal to the Supreme Court. So we've got a hearing on that on the 7th of November. But it's with so the, the, U- the UK government is currently trying to just not have a ruling on this issue? Well, the ruling's happened. The reference has been made. It's been accepted. They would like to stop that happening. They've failed to do that. And they're going to have to provide answers to the Court of Justice by the 30th of October on whether they think Article 50 can be revoked. That's what they wanted to stop. They haven't stopped that. But if they're successful in an appeal to the Supreme Court, they might just be successful in staying the reference to the Court of Justice, although I can't see the Court of Session agreeing to that, because it's the Court of Session that has to give consent to that. Okay. And do you think this is all going to be academic, or do you think it could become a live issue? It might all become ap- academic, and that's always been clear from the beginning, but as the weeks go by, as every deadline passes, it looks like we're going to face a very high risk of a very chaotic Brexit. Now, in those circumstances, the UK Parliament's got a critical role to play in January or February um, next year, and it needs all the options on the table and the knowledge about the effect of 
voting to revoke Article 50 is just one of those bits of information that they need to have uh, to give them all the possible options of dealing with what I think will be a very chaotic few months ahead. Yeah, I think we're all expecting a chaotic few months ahead. On that note, uh, we will leave it there. Thank you very much for listening. I'd like to thank my two guests, Gail Ross and Andy Whiteman, for taking part, and we'll see you next time. Cheers.